You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Friday, June 5th, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, joined shortly by our CEO and co-founder, Rao Powell in the Cayman Islands. But first, Jack Farley with the latest on the jobs report. Thanks, Ash. It's jobs day. And today we saw a rare glimmer of hope from the U.S. labor market. Looking at non-farm payrolls, the U.S. economy added two and a half million new jobs in May, defying the dismal seven and a half million job losses forecasted by economists. Manufacturing payrolls came in at a robust 225,000, much better than the 400,000 losses that were expected. The unemployment rate was expected to reach 19%, but it fell to 13.3% as management, service, sales, construction, mining, production, and transportation all reported strong new hirings. It should be noted that the Bureau of Labor Statistics ended the report by saying there was a large number of U.S. workers who were classified as employed, but in fact were absent from work. And if these workers had been counted as unemployed, the unemployment rate would have been about three percentage points higher. Amid this good news, there was a frenzy on Wall Street today for risk assets, with the S&P up 2.8% as of the time of this filming. As of yesterday, U.S. stocks could already boast the greatest 50-day rally in the history of the S&P 500, so today is just the cherry on top. Equity in Hertz Global Holdings, previously dismissed as worthless as the company declared bankruptcy in late May, was bid up dramatically, up 77% and up 825% since its lows. This zeal by investors is not limited to equities, as the Australian dollar, largely seen as a barometer for global risk, rallied today, finally piercing through the 70 cent ceiling against the US dollar. This level exceeds the highs seen before the emergence of COVID-19. Speaking of the Aussie dollar, Rao just did a fantastic interview with Gerard Minak, where they discussed this very topic. If you were a fan of Rao's interview with James Aitken, I think you're going to like this one as well. So it seems like the labor market and the stock market are no longer contradicting each other, at least for now. So far, the off-sighted V-shaped recovery, so evident on the chart of the S&P, has eluded the real economy and workers in particular. But now we have a first glimpse that the bifurcation between Wall Street and Main Street could be at an end. The question going forward, will this continue? President Trump today signed the PPP Flexibility Act, which extends the deadline by which companies have to rehire workers from June 30th to December 31st. The PPPFA also lowers the required allocation of funds towards payroll expenses, reducing it from 75% to just 60%. And it also extends maturity for PPP loans from two to five years. To make sense of this and more, let's turn to senior editor Ash Bennington with someone I'm sure you'll be very glad to see, Real Vision's CEO, Rao Pal. Thanks, Jack. Welcome back, Rao. Thank you. Good to be here, Ash. Rao, you look different today. Yes, I know the beautiful looks, but we needed a better camera for it. You know, as you know, the, the, the bloody imagery here in Little Cayman was terrible. My computer was a bit too old. So, I mean, Brian, um, who works with us, built an incredible rig with a state-of-the-art digital camera, lighting, 
a brand new MacBook Pro. And next week or the week after, I'll get a kind of Wi-Fi booster as well. So we're actually looking like we're coming into the modern age now where, you know, we can start to see a bit more clearly. Yeah, it's really fun. Uh, Brian Caputo is a rock star. I think I'm next on the camera front. But getting into seeing more clearly, talking of which, can we see more clearly into what's happening in markets right now? Look, you know, I was I, I was um, the kind of um, host speaker for a, a Goldman Sachs hedge fund event roundtable this week and talking to a lot of the guys, the really big hedge funds, uh, macro funds in Europe and the US. I mean, everyone's still a bit shocked what's going on. People don't understand it. Uh, the technical analysts have done better, and obviously the Robinhood day traders have done better um, because that's kept them within the trend. And you know the trend of the stock market's been truly extraordinary. And you know, bravo to those people who've called it. I mean, I've been luckily not part of the stock market; I haven't shorted it, I haven't been long of it. I've kind of kept out of its way, but you know, clearly it's gone further than I thought. I'm kind of still using the Russell 2000 as my guide to what's really going on because. There's so much passive flows that it's distorting a lot of things. There's a lot of flows that I've heard coming out of the PPP payments where people have essentially got double salary um, and you know, they're throwing money into the market, uh, whether it's you know, betting like sports betting essentially on the markets, on, the, on Robin Hood, or whether it's putting money into their 401ks. And I, I, think, I do think those flows slow down. I'll, I'll come on a bit, uh, in a bit later about what I'm concerned about coming forwards, but it's been extraordinary and it's lifted, you know, all the risk on things have gone up with it, you know, whether it's copper or oil or emerging markets or, you know, the dollar getting weakened. So it's been a one way train for a while now. And, you know, our job, all of us, is to figure out the signal from the noise. You know, the question is, is, is this 2008, uh, 2009 or is this June Nikkei 1990? June Nikkei 1990 was the end of the hope rally. And then we changed. My my premise is still on that hope rally phase, um, but you know I'm in no rush to short anything, do anything. The bond market's been interesting today. It kind of blew up. Um, it's been in a very very tight range for a while, you know, as the rates were on the floor and they backed up today with those employment numbers. So it's it's an interesting time. You know that the dollar has weakened massively all week. Um, so we'll see. Next week's a fresh week. Um, I'm thinking a lot of these moves are going to be faded. I'm kind of interested in fading the euro move and fading the bond move. But let's say it's early days yet. Yeah, that's very well said and a lot there. For those who haven't seen, just a quick review. Uh, you know, the U.S. 10-year yield uh, was over uh, 90 basis points today, uh, closed around uh, 0.878. Um, to cut back to the Russell 2000 was up uh, over 4% near the close. Closed down at the closed down from the highs, I should say, at the 1506 spot 47 level, up 3.75% on the day. NASDAQ up uh, to the 9814 level, up 2% on the day. SP 500 up 2.6% on the day to 3193. Uh, and finally, closing it out, the Dow up to 27105, up 3.13% on the day. Quite a rally um, on that jobs report. Yeah, and see the jobs report again. There's there's always shenanigans in the data, and the, the market and it's irrelevant, right? Whatever we think is irrelevant, the market is the truth, and the market went up on it, um, and that's what we trade. We don't trade the underlying, but underlying, it's a lot of this PPP extension. 
Yeah. So what it basically meant is that anybody who was going to be laid off was kept on the labor force longer. So suddenly the unemployment rate goes down. So look, the unemployment rate is going to go down for a whole period of time. It's not clear where it's going to peak or where it's going to stabilize at. I mean, the market doesn't know any of these things, but it's making the bet right now that it knows that it's all going to return back to normal. I still think unemployment, you know, bottoms out, you know, 8% or so, which is usually a bad recession. So again, you know, I keep reiterating is I do the maths on these numbers that down 50%, because you know, the US is crazy, it does this quarter on quarter annualized basis, which nobody else in the world does because it's nonsense. So it's like down 50%. It's like baseball scores versus soccer scores, right? Everybody just wants basketball scores. Everyone wants a million points in America. Everyone's happy with that one all draw in, in, in Europe for football. But um, so you've got down 50% because that's what the Atlanta Fed are talking about. Then next quarter is going to be up 20, the biggest quarter ever, and then up 20 again, right? It's ridiculous. Yes. The reality is, is we'll have gone from something like down 7.5% year on year, which is what matters. Yep. And by the end of the year, if we use the market's forecast, we're actually probably down still 2% year on year. So we're still in deep recession. That's deeper than the 2001 recession when you're there. But the market doesn't want to look at that because it wants to impute a forward rate. Yep. However, I'm looking at, okay, that's fine. If that's what the market wants to do, let it do that, and that will give us an opportunity, if you're so inclined, to look at entry levels into bonds and dollars and stuff, where, or, or adding levels, I'm still all in my trades, where the fiscal stimulus starts rolling off. So the first one is the CARE Act. That rolls off generally in July, June and July. They will extend some format of it, but it'll be less. The marginal rate is what matters here, because as the marginal rates fall, there's less stimulus. The fiscal stimulus starts slowing down as the Fed balance sheet expansion has slowed down dramatically, and then the Treasury starts issuing bonds, and that soaks liquidity out of the market. That's all to come as trillions and trillions of dollars of, of um, government borrowing in the US and around the world happen. So there's a huge suck of liquidity that's going to come out of the market. We've also got I think there's an interesting thing with, and I posted some things on Twitter about the potential for a second wave. Look, none of us know, so don't accuse me of trying to play something I'm not on the internet. All I do know is most of the um, Islamic countries um, had um, reopened partly for Ramadan. And immediately after Ramadan, two weeks after Ramadan, they've all had a second wave. Iran's back at all-time peaks and the Middle East is above its peak. So, and Saudi today just announced that they're going to close uh, one of their major cities. So, I think there's a risk of that, particularly in the United States, where the RO was not reduced to below one in most places outside of New York, New Jersey, and I think New Orleans and maybe San Francisco. So, they're reopening with an R naught above. And that's so most people think that the second wave, if it should come, and again, I don't play an expert on this. But if it should come, most people thought it was to do with weather. Weather seems to be a more marginal factor. It could be a factor. But the reality is, is if you reopen and your RO is above one, that difference means that all of the people got it because the US outside of New York and New Jersey is at peak virus still. Uh, the number of cases per day remains extremely high. That means that those numbers compound very quickly and you get an exponential growth in the virus. Right. So, you know, we've got mass demonstrations. 
um, understandably so, but it increases the risk of this. And then we've got, you know, 4th of July to come and a bunch of other things where people get together. So I've got my eye on all of these risks and I'm just kind of watching, scratching my beard and thinking, hmm, okay, is the market going to overprice success here? Because that, that's real opportunity. I'm not much of a momentum trader. I like to look for those turning points uh, and then um, press on a, on a trend earlier on and get out, you know, two thirds of the way into it. Yeah. You know, um, when I was asked during the Ask Me Anything uh, about what my uh, tail risks were, it was a, a social unrest uh, and a second wave of the virus. You know, as you point out, that R naught number is so important. It's an exponentiation function. So very small changes in that number uh, can result in dramatically higher rates of overall infection. We're talking right now about getting some real experts on the platform uh, here at Real Vision to talk about the actual mechanics of how coronaviruses work. You know, on a slightly lighter note, Rao, you were talking about the the way we calculate our GDP numbers here in the U.S. And, uh, you know, Roger and I were chuckling about this. The Atlanta Nowcast uh, number that you were referring to is down minus 52.8%. I mean, I just really enjoy the comical precision of these numbers. Uh, and, you know, not only are they, are they are reported on an annualized rate quarterly, they also seasonally adjusted. So it's S-A-A-R. These numbers are so complicated, so hard to follow. A simple year-over-year basis, so much easier to calculate. Absolutely. You know, Rao, talking of numbers, the, the exact numbers we had today is, uh, so the U.S. economy added 2.5 million new jobs. That's the most in a single month since basically the end of the World War II era. The unemployment rate is down to 13.3%. That's the U3 number. Uh, and I think the, the the boost is coming from the fact that this was uh, this was so far above or, you know, a below consensus, which was 198 percent and the range was 17.5 to 20 percent so beat the range wow i mean extraordinary and the problem is is it's all meaningless so <laughs> we can try and make some assessment of probabilities out of it the truth is nobody has a clue the only people who really have a clue are the people who've been following the trend and have remained in the trade they have a clue because they've been getting it right but Nobody actually knows what the economy is going to do. You know, as I've talked about on the daily briefing almost every week is I look at the high frequency trading, the high frequency data, the alternative data sets out of China and other countries. I mean, there's a marginal recovery, but most retail still down 20% in many of these economies that open. I mean, a few weeks ago, everyone was lauding the big rise in German restaurants. Well, it's gone back down to negative 25 or negative 30%. So... We're not seeing anything really that says that the resumption of cash flows to the global economy are back. We just don't see it. Yeah. Look, the reality is businesses do not reopen. The real economy does not reopen on a dime. This is something that is very much a work in progress. It takes time. It scales up. Uh, and uh, that's the way that you eventually get back to earnings. And it's not something that's going to be turned on with the flip of the switch. No, exactly right. And, you know, we also don't know how much stimulus is having effect and in what way. You know, as we've talked about, some of the PPP stuff's going into the markets. We've seen the massive rise in brokerage accounts that got opened over the period because people were bored at home and started punting. You know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Who knows? But we don't really know yet how this stimulus is going to play out and what happens to the structural unemployed, how large that group is, what that does to uh, GDP. We just don't know so many answers. Right. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a very, 
I think what str everyone's struggling with is with so little answers, it's very difficult to make an informed bet. Yeah. The one thing that we know for certain about the fiscal stimulus is that it is temporary. Yes, globally. Yes. Everywhere. So, you know, um, on Monday, I think everyone was seeing an interview with Gerard Minak, who's one of my favorite strategists and economists based out of Australia, but he's a global strategist and economist. And, you know, Australia, it rolls off. The UK, it rolls off. Europe, it rolls off. And it, they're all over the summer at various points. And by September, they've done it. It's all gone. So unless we're going to go and do another two or three trillion in September, you know, it becomes quite difficult for to do it. And Europe, where I'm particularly concerned, is we've had this European bond issuance, the mutualization of 600 billion. Great. Now what? 600 billion means it's about 90 billion or something for Italy. I mean, they need trillions if they need to sort out their banking system. That's Italy and Spain and maybe France and probably Germany. And then there's Greece. I mean, the whole lot need money. So the, the number is in the trillions, multiple trillions, five, six, seven trillion to actually create solvency within that system again. But I bet you the Dutch won't allow that to happen. Who's going to mutualize it? Those numbers dwarf the small economies that are saying no to the, um, to the expansion of the mutualization. So I worry that the European situation is one and done for now. And as I've said before, the real issue in Europe is not when the euro is trading at, at 112, 113. The real issue in Europe is when the euro is trading at 80 cents. Then, only then, will people make a decision that actually is a real, meaningful, long-term structural change. Yeah, even if the frugal, frugal four becomes the frugal three, with Germany needing to somehow recapitalize their banking system, it's still a significant political battle. You know, I was also struck by when you said one and done. So even if we go back to the well, even if it's two and done or three and done, it's temporary. Uh, it is not permanent, and um, and it is so far, at very least, far below the levels needed. Yeah, and just again, people need to understand that this is just helping the governments now with some of the debts that they just added. But if they have to extend stimulus, there's more trillions to come. And that all ends up in the ECB balance sheet. And as I've said in the past, the ECB, the euro is much less liquid than the dollar. So for the equal amount of euros versus dollars issued by central banks, the euro has a larger impact. So I'm, you know, I still remain negative of the euro. Maybe I'm a complete idiot. Maybe this is the total sea change that everybody's been looking for, and this was the Draghi moment. Uh, I don't see it. But there's but still. I've been, I've had egg on my face in the past, so you know I don't mind that. You know, there's still so much more to do, though. If you think about debt mutualization, union of the banking system, unified fiscal authority, the whole panoply of things that that the eurozone would need to put into place to truly have the United States of Europe is a is a multi-decade project, perhaps. Yes, but the markets will will and have reacted to change at the margin, right? It's the marginal change, not the, not the feta complete, not the final version that makes the difference. So the market is saying, okay, there is a probability here that we've actually gone to a new level and a new understanding of where Europe may head. And therefore we need to reprice that. So we price the Europe. So if you think of the Euro priced in a band between Greece and Italy, and Germany at the top, it trades within the band. So yeah. 
So it's what it's done is said, well, we've shifted up the bottom a bit closer to Germany, therefore the euro should go up a bit. And that's basically the assumption. Is it right or wrong? Very early days. Yeah, and with all that said, uh, euro dollar trading now at uh, about uh, 113. Yeah, yeah. So, and really, it's been in that sloppy range. Don't forget, it was here a month ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's just been a very wide sloppy range. And one of my theories behind that, and I was speaking to a friend of mine who's um, who's a Real Vision subscriber based out in uh, Dominican Republic, big family office there. And, um, you know, in an economy like that, which has a free-floating currency, they have a tremendous need for dollars. There's no tourist industry. There's virtually no export industry. Nobody's got dollars. And he said, well, listen, nobody's been paying bills on their foreign remittance, foreign payments. But as the economies reopen, they start with the same issues, which is suddenly the dollars all come back. And Gerard Minak raised the same point about Australia. We were talking about, why has the Aussie dollar been so strong, right? It's been a standout. And he's like, well, it's pretty simple, really. They sold a bunch of iron ore to, to Australia, and they've run the largest current account surplus in the history of Australia, roughly, you know, or something of that magnitude. And because there's no other flows, so little speculative capital, so little trade flows, that that massively distorts the currency. And I'm like, oh, yeah, obviously. It's just we, we're not in a full market yet. You know, we, you look at the stock market, and you kind of think everything is normal. <laughs> but, you know... When we, I've talked to you, you're still stuck in your apartment in New York. I'm still stuck in, on a small island where I can't get off and nobody can come onto it. Half the world is still entirely shut down. So the payments of dollars around the world, the velocity of those dollars is close to zero still. But we forget it because this bloody narrative, and you don't see it when you're on Twitter and stuff. You just kind of think everybody's rushing around back at work. It's just not the case. Totally not the case. And and the, sometimes the charts are are... are are falsely soothing. I just clicked on the five-year chart in the euro five years ago today. We were basically where we are right now. On US equity markets, looking at my spreadsheet here, so we've retraced 83.36% to that to the high of, uh, of uh, 33.93 on uh, 19 Feb, uh, and we're 94% of the way back. It's, it's like nothing has changed. I mean, it's surreal. Yeah. And again, we need to and Mike Green's always made a good point about this. We need to dis and Brent Johnson's been good at this as well. Is we need to distance ourselves from thinking that the stock market is a macro variable. Yeah, it is not. It's a flow variable and a behavioral variable more than anything else. The macro component is much smaller, and it usually expresses itself in the in the year-on-year -year rate of change. Hmm. So for that, you just need to stop thinking of it as the signal. You know, the economic signal is, I think I've proven to everybody, is the bond market. Yeah. It always is. Nobody believes it, particularly the equity traders. So I use the bond market. And the bond market today said, eh, okay, maybe growth's a little bit better than we thought. That's it. That's all it's done. The rest of it's been a total flat line as it's waited to assess, much like I have done. And today it's just gone, hmm, maybe, maybe it's a little bit stronger. Let's see. Yeah. You know, Rob, to your point about still being uh, locked in my apartment, I um, I called the eyeglass store, which has been closed for about a month now. I'm trying to get my prescription renewed. And uh, I got them on the phone and I said, great, you've reopened. This is one of the few types of businesses here in New York City that can reopen. And the lady said, well, you know, last week we were open a couple of days, a few hours here and there. This week, uh, a couple of days, a few hours. And I said, great. But next week, well, you know, we'll see how it goes. 
that's the way real businesses operate, right? And this is a very large eyeglass chain here in New York City. You know, the reality is it's a slow process. We talked about, uh, I talked with this woman about uh, what I need to do to get my prescription checked. Well, you stand outside and someone comes to get you. They make sure you're wearing a mask and gloves and then you come in and we sterilize the place. I mean, maybe this is an extreme example because of the level of close contact needed to get your eyes checked, but it's a metaphor for what the process of reopening looks like. Yes. Um, exactly right. It's just, it, it is a different world, but we, there is two worlds out there as well, which is really crucial in this is there is the physical world that has taken a massive hit. The largest hit outside of wartime, probably. Yeah. And then there is the virtual world that is absolutely accelerated. If we look at the success of Real Vision over this period, or the success of Amazon, or Shopify. Um, I was speaking on a, um, a blacklist, a Real Vision blacklist call with Savneet Singh just now, who is an old friend and is super plugged in the tech world. We were just talking about this move towards SaaS and the, the low debt, massive margin, massive acceleration of the virtual world, the digital world, the cloud world, all of that. And Stan Druckermill has talked about it as well. So there is a real story of a secular shift that's accelerating within this. Yeah. So you can't be bearish of everything. Yes, sure, Amazon might get regulated and Google might get regulated. And there's a bunch of other things out there. We've got an election in the way. But there's a real meaningful trend, which is the world of GE is finished. Yeah. And the world of Amazon has only just started. Whatever format it takes, maybe it gets separated from the cloud. But that whole world of digitalization, even video, you know, video has basically taken over the world. It's, it's completely trumped all other forms of human communication now. Yeah. Even most of us are starting to use video, you know, FaceTime video messages with friends and stuff like that. When we were, we used to do that, we're now doing this more often. Yeah. It's taking over everything. It's become the new normal. I mean, we don't even miss being in the office, really. Sure, we all get a bit cooped up, but, but generally speaking, we all have a good chat. We'll, we'll have a good social interaction. We have no issues in now socializing with each other, seeing each other in video. But six months ago, it's like, oh, you know, we should get together and have a proper meeting. You know, I'll fly out to New York. It's the world has changed. It's changed hugely. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Raul. It's so well said. Uh, you know, video may be the ultimate metaphor for what's happened uh, during this crisis in terms of the shift in the patterns of consumption. You know, I was just looking at the Zoom numbers, revenue from prior quarter for, for Zoom, the company that's probably one of the best metaphors for what's happening here, up 170% uh, on the prior quarter and net income double. So the rate of, uh, of profit growth actually outstripped the rate of revenue increase. Why? Because it's a company that once you can scale it, it scales massively. And that is what makes technology such a compelling proposition and video in this particular case, especially. Yeah, exactly right. But the, you know, the, that's prevalent across that whole software industry. So, you know, yes, I mean, the prices being paid right now are ludicrous. Um, so again, it's not, a, it's not a justification for market values or the market going up, but I'm, I'm always interested in secular shifts. It yeah. just feels like, you know, the old, if you think of, G is a great business um, to understand because it's bricks and mortar and factories, machineries, and massive sales forces, and all the stuff you don't want. Yeah. And what comes with that is massive amounts of debt. 
right? It's expensive to do stuff like that. And then you you have these assets, so you you borrow against them, so they get more indebted, and it becomes sluggish and crappy. And then suddenly a startup comes into a space and telemedicine comes. You know, suddenly you don't need a you don't need certain diagnostic machines in the place you're in because you can have the diagnosis done elsewhere. And you know, things change so fast in the software world, but in the physical world of old industry, it's just not as fast. They just can't catch up. Yeah. Yeah, and to, to talk about the regulatory point that, that you made and the potential risk of some of these companies getting broken up, you know, one of the things that we talk about when we look at durable realignments and real estate trends, you often mention, you know, nobody wants these 5,000 square foot houses out in Western New Jersey. That's actually where I grew up. And the big high tech company of the time when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s was AT&T. Now, AT&T, of course, ran into some regulatory trouble, uh, monopoly claims, which is what some of the, you know, the people who are really thinking about this deeply think may happen to Microsoft, Amazon, whoever, uh, pick, pick, your, pick your poison in terms of big five S&P companies. The reality is if you held AT&T stock in 1984 when the divestiture uh, agreement was, was, was brokered and those stocks got spun, spun out, you did absolutely brilliantly over the five, 10, and 20 years to come. If only I could buy AT&T stock in 1983. And now, AT&T bought an extraordinarily expensive media company at, with record amounts of debt. It is now the most indebted corporate entity on earth mm. with something like $167 billion of debt. The, ch the, the massive the monthly chart of it looks horrific. When I look at the really long-term chart, it looks like, sure, it's bouncing from here, but it's bouncing off that trend line. If it ever breaks that trend line, AT&T is going to halve and halve again from here. Mm. And I see that in the charts of GE and all of these big, triple B, old economy names. They're just right. Something is deeply wrong there, and, and that, I don't think that's going away. I don't think that can be solved. I don't know. AT&T is never going to grow its way out of its debt. Yeah. It, it What's it going to do, sell another 2 billion telephones? Unless it has a monopoly on 5G and can charge super normal profits, it just, there's no way, which is yeah. why I bought a media company. Problem is, is the advertising revenues have collapsed. So all of the cash flow from the media companies have collapsed too. So, uh, you know, it's a mess. Doesn't it remind you a little bit of when uh, Jerry Levin over at Time Warner bought, uh, bought AOL from Steve Case at the very top of the markets? Of course it does. But uh, although today it doesn't seem like it's the top of the market, Ash. It looks like we're going to new all-time highs, so maybe these are all false signals. Who knows? Yeah, but what is interesting when you mention AT&T and the old world companies, that's the, the, the beauty of the economy. This is what makes it so dynamic, is the Schumpeterian creative destruction. What was once on the vanguard is now a laggard. Yes. Sometimes it's sad, too. And again, the conversation with Savni was just a great call. He's such a smart guy. Is the restaurant industry, what's happened like everywhere over COVID, the people who apply enormous amounts of data and technology, which is a, something that Bill Tai talked about as well, the winners have been the people who've applied the most technology to their businesses have managed to scale because they've understood customer behavior. Yeah. So the large restaurant chains have basically cleaned up and they're all year on year rate of change of sales well above, you know, they're kind of record sales. But all of the small restaurants that we actually love, where we have that social interaction, the human side of, of eating and sharing food and sharing conversation and wine, decimated. Yeah.
and they can't apply technology and they can't apply things that help them with the market. Well, they could, but they just don't do it well enough. So yeah. it, it, on it's a human, sad. Yeah. No, exa exactly, Rob. Exactly what I was going to say. On a human level, it's tragic. And I don't want to live in a world. I don't want to live in a world of just mega brands and monopolies and oligopolies because choice is what makes life so interesting. It makes you and I be able to have different experiences every day. And that creates conversation and depth and richness. But if we all eat at McDonald's every day and go to Chipotle at lunchtime and then we go to Chickafil for dinner, what life is that? Yeah. It's kind of like this COVID life. After a while, every day is the same. Yes. And it misses, even though we're on video and we're doing a lot of things, the, the other part of your life loses that textual richness that makes life life. And that's why people get pissed off being in this confinement. And I just worry about what does an economy look like, which is, it's a bit dystopian when it's just mega brands, when the only place to shop is Amazon. Well, I'll give you a little ray of light here from New York City, something that I've seen, especially in the restaurant industry. I'm a New York bachelor. I don't really cook. So this is something that I would classify myself as an expert in, ordering in food, something I do all the time. You're right. Most of the mom and pop shops, it's really tragic because some of these are family businesses, family pubs, family restaurants that have been in operation for decades. It's really hard to see how this is uh, something that isn't just devastating to them. And of course, the mega brands have thrived, as you pointed out. But there's also seems to be this middle zone where there are these little New York City mini chain restaurants. They have, you know, five, seven, three sometimes uh, restaurants. And they've, they've done a very good job of figuring out uh, what the sort of rising trends are that millennials are looking for in food. They want things that they can order on their phones. They want things that are healthy. They want food that's grilled. They want lots of vegetables. They want some meats. Sorry, Ash, are you, are you trying grilled. to claim you're a millennial? I like to call myself a zennial, Rao. I'm on that, I'm on the cusp, sharing some millennial characteristics while technically having a millennial birthday. Uh, by, by technically having a Gen X birthday, I should say. See, I can't even get it straight. It's so hard for me to get it out. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that software as a service has allowed these companies to do is if you can build that mini chain of say three restaurants or five restaurants, uh, you can then partner with Postmates and you can kind of jump on their cloud infrastructure and it's totally seamless. All you need to do is be able to integrate on the front end for you. They do all the back end. So it does sort of suggest that we're not just going to live in a world where we're all eating, you know, McDonald's yeah. hamburgers. And and you know, you raise a key point that the the Schumpeterian creative destruction is what what we'll have done is there'll be a bunch of low margin businesses that might have been your local favorite, but just really didn't do well. We've already seen there is a huge movement towards entrepreneurism, people opening new restaurants and local food stores and all of that great stuff that we're seeing that that is making life in the big cities kind of nice again. Right. That probably comes to the fore more. But it's going to take a while. You know, people need to regroup, get some capital back together, get people back in. But what we'll do is we'll probably freshen up everything. I never forget, um, it was before I was in Grand Cayman, but people talk about it. Hurricane Ivan was a Category 5 hurricane that went across Grand Cayman for several days. It went underwater, so it wasn't on the satellite imagery. It was that bad a hurricane. It destroyed 60% of all the buildings. Huge. But what came back out of the Grand Cayman was now incredible hotels, restaurants, better quality houses, these beautiful developments, and all of this stuff. And that was the creative destruction. 
out went the chintzy 70s and 80s Caribbean, in came the modern Caribbean and the leading nation in the whole region. And that came out of Hurricane Ivan. So, you know, out of these things come incredible opportunities. Like uh, Remy, who's one of the co-founders of Real Vision, I was yep. just chatting to him. He was just on his way to Ibiza. He had to lie to get on the boat. He said he was going for a job interview because he's not allowed to travel. But he was going there and he's like, it's decimated. None of the nightclubs are opening. The tourism industry is not going to really open. And he said all half of these shops, the little Ibiza shops, all shut down. And I said to him, surely that's a massive opportunity because millions of people will go back to Ibiza next year. He's like, yeah, what a hell of an investment opportunity if you get the chance. And as I've always said, he who has cash in a recession is king because you can do things that other people can't. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if you haven't already seen it yet, the Bill Tai interview that you did is, is really terrific. A really big picture thinker. He's a fascinating guy with an amazing story. It's a great narrative. And the thing that I enjoy most about it is sometimes the the, the really big picture thinkers can get uh, a little bit disjointed from what's actually happening on the ground. Bill Tai is a guy who was, uh, who was a chip engineer, so grounded in reality. and Literally blew me away. One of the nicest people you could meet. He starts super humble in, in how he approaches things and then completely blows you away with his unbelievable knowledge. And, you know, we joked about having created the idea of an electro the electro currency. And his, that, this is just one of the best things. I think I stole that from him. He actually invented it, but I just ran, railroaded it through and said, well, we've just come up with this idea together. But, but his idea was, was genius, is, is if you understand the terminology of petrodollar, petrodollar is two things to people. One is um, the dollars that people like Saudi Arabia get, and that petrodollar economy sloshes into the global system. But really, after uh, Nixon abandoned the gold standard, that whole petrodollar idea was that the oil, the revenues from oil was the new dollar economy, and it didn't need to be pegged to gold because the key thing was oil. So there was a different way of looking at it, and the US wanted access to those dollars from the oil-producing nations. And it became this lovely symbiotic relationship where they would buy US treasuries and the world that we kind of know today. And he said, well, that's potentially now changed because oil is not the key thing that we use for the world to go around anymore. Of course, it's still incredibly important. But the most important commodity of all is the electron. Hmm. And whether that's electricity or whether it's computing power. But the point being is that if you were given the choice between electricity or oil, and I understand that one is made from the other potentially, most people would take electricity. Yeah. So therefore, electricity and computing and, and stored productivity. So he said, well, if you think of the dollar as the stored pro productivity in oil, then this is now becoming, as central banks move to these digital currencies and Bitcoin and everything else, their stored productivity of electricity, which is fascinating because... You know, Bitcoin itself, part of the price derivation comes from the cost of mining, which yes. is the electricity, same as the cost of oil does, same as the cost of gold. But the point being, he's saying, well, that electricity, that stored productivity of what you can do with it, in Bitcoin's case, you can store things on it, the trusted relationship, the payment mechanisms, everything else, or if it's computing power, all has more value in this world 
Um, he's just a brilliant thinker, Bill. He's just amazing. That's one of my favorite interviews that I've done in a long time. And I had, I'd met him once briefly. So we got introduced by a friend from the Cayman Islands. So he's got to talk to this guy. And uh, I mean, the comments section were like 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. This is unbelievable. Yeah, it really lit up the comments board. Yeah, definitely. You know, and on the other side of the coin, um, I don't know if you had a chance to see the Steve Clapham interview yet. I think it's it's fascinating and it's a great counterpoint uh, to the Bill Tai piece because Steve Clapham is a guy who's uh, been involved uh, in the hedge fund world uh, and his background is in forensic accounting. And it's so fascinating. It's just so cool about Real Vision is you have these really big picture thinkers and then you have Steve Clapham who basically says, okay, guys, time out. Earnings, revenue, balance sheet quality. Let's take a look at these things. And he breaks down what he thinks is going to happen in, in the rest of 2021 from an earnings perspective and really comes us, brings us really back down to earth on what his view is. So it's a great counterpoint to the Bill Tai interview, both terrific interviews and in very different ways. Yeah, that's one of my loves about Real Vision is you turn on every day. I check every morning. I get up about, I'm up about 5, 5.30. First thing I do is what is the interview today? I purposely don't know, want to know. And I go, Oh, wow. Okay. Who's this? What's this about? And, you know, it's the, it's the breadth that you get over the course of a few months that it's just, there's nothing like it. Um, and I'm just speaking as a user, you know, it's just, it's fantastic to get that kind of breadth of knowledge about stuff you'd never know anything about. Yeah. We've both drunk Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah, we have. <laughs> Rob, we've run long once again. Um, any final thoughts? Just if you're going to go and protest, and I said this to the staff here at Real Vision, is if you're going to go protest, just take some precautions. Go to the larger demonstrations where there are, there is more security. Um, don't break any curfews because things are a little bit dicey out there. And just think about wearing a mask because, hey, what's the downside? Yeah. Yeah. And I would add... Uh... If you're going to do it, do it closer to 10 in the morning than 10 at night. Yeah, exactly right. People have been uh, here in New York City, uh, for the most part, very well behaved during the day. People are out expressing themselves, being voluble about uh, their passion for uh, their feelings. Uh, but it's it's been much safer during the day. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, other than that, all have, have a great weekend. And let's see what this market does next week. It's probably up another 20%. You know, who knows? <laughs> That's what makes it fun. <laughs> Stay safe, everyone. Thanks for joining us. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.